And the thing about public faith is that the term in and of itself could be provocative because in some circles you could say that this is seen as an oxymoron, right? Faith is private. It's not, it's not public. I mean, of course, there's always public manifestations of faith, and, and it's visible at all times, but, but faith cannot make any claims upon the public, upon those who don't share it. Faith belongs to the realm of private belief. And so, you know, faith is what happens when you go home and you shut the doors or you go into your church. You're free to believe literally anything that you want in private. I'm free to believe that I am the President of the United States of America, you know? Uh, I am free to believe that I'm a wizard, but when I come out and, you know, start making those private claims public, well, if I do that, then I'm liable to be institutionalized. So religion belongs to the private world of faith, not the public world of facts. And this attitude is common, and it it was captured um, this past week in a tweet that I saw from the erstwhile comedian Patton Oswalt, the, the actor, famous, most famous probably for his role voicing the rat in Ratatouille, I believe. But, um, but he's been in a ton of other stuff. But Patton Oswalt, uh, he tweeted this. He said, Dear people citing the Bible, it's a cool book with some wonderful passages, but also has ghost sex and giants and super babies and demons. It's why we don't make laws based on Game of Thrones, My Little Pony, or Legend of Zelda. So this was in response to uh, the Attorney General citing Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, which, which he was referencing uh, in, to kind of stave off growing criticism from across the Christian spectrum to the current administration's policy of separating uh, parents and kids, uh, parents who have crossed the border illegally and now are seeking asylum from their minor, minor children. And so... Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first, it's been quite the week for public faith, for sort of, uh, you know, uh, I think the number one, one of the m- number one trending things on Twitter this past week was Romans 13. And so, uh, uh, all that to say, uh, I, it's been such a week for public faith that I thought, well, I'll talk about Romans 13 and how do you do public theology well next week. So, I'm inserting that one into the sermon series. So, no, no hot takes uh, from me this week, but just to say that I think that type of, of proof Texting, one of my seminary professors called it Bible darting, uh, is not helpful and, and, and it's not illustrative of what, what public theology, doing theology in public, should look like. And so that's for, that's for next week. But I want to get back to what Patton Oswald said and really what's behind what he was saying because his message is clear. Right? The Bible, it's, it's cool, but it's also got some weird stuff in it. And, and, um, you know, the problem is with how we, we treat it. And so it's in the same category as every other human story that's been made up. There's, there's nothing bad about The Legend of Zelda or, uh, you know, Game of Thrones or My Little Pony. I mean, I, the brony community is great. But, like, like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that no one claims they have any authority in public debates or public policy or, or claims about morality. Now, there's all sorts of specious presuppositions behind that that I cannot uh, begin to, hope to begin to unpack this morning. But what I can say is that his perspective, it, it's helpful to hear it put that way because it's quite common. But just because it's common doesn't mean it's right. And it's one that needs to be challenged. 
And because we live in a pluralist democracy, actually public faith is absolutely necessary. And, and so there's a couple approaches that are not helpful when it comes to faith and public life. And one of them is, I think, the overarching tendency, which is just to compartmentalize our lives. So to say, like, yeah, yeah, faith belongs in the church, and then, it, you know, I come out into sort of the naked public square, and I leave my theological convictions at home, hide that part of myself. And that's buying into the lie that says that faith is private and doesn't belong in the public square. Because if that was the case, we never would have had things like the 1960s civil rights movement. We never would have had a peaceful end to the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 1990s and, and, and the truth and reconciliation that followed from that. See, the problem with, with making religious faith private is that every person operates from a position of faith. Even secular people offer it from a position of faith. At the most foundational level, all of us, our core convictions are based on faith. There's no such thing as a purely, you know, facts-based society, no matter what Neil deGrasse Tyson dreams of for his fictional country of rationalia. All of us engage the world from a place of faith. Just a, a, an important example is, is universal human rights. You know, I think the vast majority of us in this room are like, yes, the UN Declaration on Universal Human Rights, that's a great document. But our, when we read that, that's a declaration of faith, the same as the Apostles' Creed. These aren't things that were come up with in a lab or discovered in a test tube. These are fundamental beliefs about human beings and human society and how they should be organized and should function. And they actually come out of a, a kind of a secularized summary of Western Christian theological anthropology and social and political thought. But if we're a consistent Oswaltian, you know, we should say that they're on the same ground as My Little Pony and Legend of Zelda. They're just something that human beings came up with. How can they claim any authority over us? They're not facts. In the words of the dude in The Big Lebowski, they're just like your opinion, man. And so one response is, is, you know, you buy the faith is private line and you live this compartmentalized life. But that's not tenable. Faith is a feature of human life. It's not a bug. And another response, which I think is less common in our particular context, but we certainly see everywhere and, and is very off-putting, is to say, yes, faith should be public and I'm going to be as obnoxious as possible about it. And this is kind of the conflation of public faith with a kind of cultural Christianity that is endlessly being caught up in culture wars. We could think of something like the war on Christmas that, that really isn't about public faith in a meaningful way, but largely a debate, a ginned up media debate over cultural signifiers that have nothing to do with following Jesus. But what if I told you there's a better way? What if I told you that Surprise, surprise, looking to Jesus and seeing how he brought faith public and the gospel public would help us to understand the necessity of public faith, how we can do it well, and where we get the strength to do it well. So it's necessity, how we do it, and, and, and the strength to do it well, the power to do it well. And in talking and using this phrase public faith, I've kind of been begging the question this whole time. But what I mean by public faith is, faith is this. 
bringing our whole authentic selves with us wherever we are, whatever we're doing. And so if you're a Christian, this means bringing your commitment to Christ with you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in such a way, insofar as it's up to you, that it actually contributes to creating peace, civility, and the common good. All right, so we're going to look at the necessity, how to do it, and where the ability to do it comes from. And so first, the necessity of public faith. And so this passage that Katie read, it's one of the most delightful in John's gospel. And the part that we didn't read, Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria, and it's hot, and, 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 and they're tired. And, and if you know anything, you know, if you've been to Sunday school even a couple of times, you know that Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. But Jesus and his disciples are passing through. It's hot. They're tired. So G- Jesus stops at this place called Jacob's Well, and he sends the disciples into town to get some food. And so Jesus is by himself at this well, and this woman comes, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's blown away because he's a Jewish man speaking to her, a Samaritan woman, in public. And then they get to talking, and Jesus offers her this living water so that she'll never, ever have to drink again. She'll never have to come back to this well again. And, and she doesn't get, us, get it, as is often the case in John. Jesus is talking on this level, and we're all hearing it down on this level. He's speaking spiritually. She, she's thinking literally. And so she says, give me this water. And Jesus says, well, bring your husband here. And then it comes out that the man she's living with now isn't her husband. She's had hot five husbands before. And then they get into this discussion about who is the Messiah and where should he be worshipped. And he tells you, the one you're looking for, God's Messiah, God's rescuer, it's me. And when she hears that, she goes off to tell her fellow villagers. She goes public. And just then the disciples come back and they're blown away that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. That was verse 27. They say, they were surprised. He was talking to a woman, but none of them dared say anything. And they say, Rabbi, you sent us to get some food. Well, we got some. Have something to eat. And then Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. Well, naturally, they think he just sent us to buy some food. He was talking to this woman. She probably gave him some food to eat at this point. But again, they're speaking on two different levels. And so Jesus realizes their confusion, and he says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And here we see the necessity of a public faith, of taking the gospel public and sharing the message of the kingdom out in the open. Jesus describes that. Doing God's will, accomplishing the purposes for which God sent him as food. That is sustenance. The thing about food is it's, it's basic. It's necessary for survival. It's not extraneous. It's not optional. It's not appetizers. It's not dessert. It's food. He needs to do that just as much as he needs to eat. And you know, if you want to eat, you've also got to grow it. So it's necessary like sowing and reaping. And then Jesus gives this wonderfully cryptic statement about sowing and reaping. And it doesn't make any sense to us because most of us in this room are not farmers. But Jesus says, do not you say there are yet four months, then then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
And so sowing in this context is pointing people to eternal life in Jesus Christ, and reaping is seeing some of them actually come to faith. And Jesus' message is that normally sowing and reaping, like, you have several months between those things. You put the seed in the ground, and you cover it over, and you wait for the rain to come and do its thing, and then you just wait, and you watch. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that sometimes sowing and reaping happen almost at the same time, almost instantaneously. Someone just gets it. And then they begin to share it with others. And Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And one commentator shares the story of a a 19th century English uh, traveler who was at this same well in Samaria. And he was sitting there looking at a nearby village. And he could see people coming out of it to greet him. And, and, And they looked like rows of wheat in the distance. And so Jesus is perhaps speaking metaphorically about something he's actually seeing. This woman has gone and shared this news, and here are these villagers coming out. And he can see that the fields are white for the harvest. He sowed the seed to her. It quickly sprung up with life. She went and sowed it in the village, and it quickly sprung up and bore fruit. So this is the necessity of of public faith. This is how God works in the world to spread the good news that is for everyone through public conversations that are as essential to human existence as bread and water. And it's through these conversations that the seed of the gospel is sown. And curiously, it's through those that God does his work. So next is the method of public faith. And to understand how to do that well, we look to Jesus and this woman. And so the first point to note is this. A public faith means being open to engaging with people who aren't already in your own tribe. Jesus passed through Samaria, somewhere where a a pious rabbi such as himself would have been expected to avoid because Samaritans were ethnic and religious others. And not only that, he spoke to a Samaritan woman in public, breaking a taboo about relations between the sexes in public. And so public faith in a pluralistic society like our own means relationships and discourse across tribal lines. We cannot just retreat to our own cultural and theological and ethnic ghettos where we have conversations with ourselves. We've got to be willing to enter the public square, to have a chair at the stable in the stall of the marketplace of ideas, as Mike Nelson once wonderfully put it. One of the great problems that we see in this country, and I think we all sense, is the sense that we are increasingly sorting ourselves into cultural ghettos where we only and increasingly interact with people who look like us and think like us and believe like us. And so a public faith starts with being a public person, Moving outside of these, you know, filter bubbles we put ourselves in and engaging with people who don't believe or live the same we do. And it doesn't mean leaving our convictions behind. No, it's a confident pluralism where we trust that our beliefs, our ideas, our practices can stand up to scrutiny and they can be sharpened and enhanced through our interactions with others who don't share them. So it starts with how Jesus does public faith. He gets outside of his own community. And then this woman has her transformative encounter with Jesus, and and when she has that, we see public faith in action. And there are two points uh, to her method that I think are super helpful for us. And the first is just her personal transparency. 
She doesn't hide herself. She goes to her village and she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. She's vulnerable. She's honest. And she doesn't have it all figured out. She says, could this be the Christ? I don't know. There's not a lot of theology behind what she's saying, but there is an honesty and a vulnerability and a transparency that are very powerful. That, 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 that she reveals that this encounter with Jesus has spoken to the very depths of who she is, and, and she's been exposed in the best possible way. And so how can we do public faith like her? Stop hiding that part of yourself. Simply being transparent about, about who we are and, and how we make decisions and, and how we deal with problems, right? Oftentimes when we're thinking about how we make decisions and how we deal with problems in life, those are, those are two of the main places where the rubber meets the road of our faith and our everyday life. Decisions and problems. What am I going to do with my life? We pray, right? Uh, what, how am I going to deal with this burden that I'm facing, this challenge I'm facing? You know, that's when, when discipleship hits the road. God, prayer, church, scripture, those are at the heart of how we face those things. And so don't be afraid to be public about how we face decisions and problems. And I think a shining example where I've seen someone doing this really, really well is actually our own Bridget Nelson. Sorry, Bridget, to call you out, but, but one of the joys of praying with you each and every week is, is just learning how you bring your faith to bear in situations uh, with people who don't share it. But it's public faith. How you share your Christian hope with, with other people who don't, and it's not obnoxious or pushy. It's just, well, you're facing this problem. Here's how I've dealt with it. Or you have this decision to make that you're not sure what you should do. Well, here's what I would do, and, and let's pray about it. Not being afraid to be public about that. It's not prideful. It's saying, I want you to have what I have. And it's that simple and profound at the same time. Being vulnerable, being transparent, being honest with who you are, with people who don't necessarily share your same convictions. And so the first point is be vulnerable, be honest. And, and the second point we glean from her for how to do public faith is she just points people to Jesus. She says, come see a man. Could this be the Christ? Because Christianity at its core is about introducing people to this person. Right? It's not a religious system. It's not a set of behaviors you have to follow. It, what sets Christianity apart from all other religions and ideologies in the world is it centers on this person. Jesus of Nazareth, as the one who one of my favorite theologians says, uh, is the clue to history. The clue to history. He's the person who provides the lenses through which all of existence makes sense. The purpose behind the universe, when we look at Jesus, we see it isn't randomness, it isn't blind luck, right? The naked struggle for, for survival or nothingness, but at the center of the universe and of human life is love. Sacrificial love. And that's the audacious method, message of Jesus and, um, and the Christian faith, is that by trusting in Jesus and confessing him as Lord over all, we get the truest picture of reality, of what the world is really like. And, and to modern ears, that's almost, almost, that sounds almost anathema. 
How can one make that kind of claim for Christ? Isn't that intolerant? Isn't that the way to sectarian violence and religious wars, the kind that tore Europe apart uh, uh, in, the, in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, which, which we left behind in favor of religious toleration centuries ago and have built the modern Western world? You can't say, I'm right, my view of the world is right, and you're wrong. That's narrow, that's intolerant, that's arrogant. And I think that's the wrong way of framing it. It isn't that Christians should say, I'm right, and you're wrong. That's pride. It's that we ought to say, I have this story that I have to share with you, because this is good news for everyone. This is how God has entered into history to fix what is broken and how he's healed it, and how he's provided it and us with a hopeful future. Because the truth of the matter is this, we all live from a story about the world, of what we believe is true, and that we think other people ought to accept it. Everyone has faith and think that other people should believe what they do. I mean, the Western world, the liberal order of the Western world was built upon a story about individual freedom which has deep roots in Christianity. The, the story of individual liberty is itself based on faith. The belief that the best version of human life is for individuals to decide for themselves how they want to live, what they want to do, what they want to believe. And, and, and if you just ask people, why do you believe in the, in the paramount importance of individual liberty for hu human flourishing? If you get beyond some sort of pragmatic, consequentialist argument, they'll just say, I don't know, I just do. It just seems good to me. And so all of us need to operate from unquestioned foundational beliefs about the purpose of life and the nature of reality to do anything. Again, faith is a feature of human existence, not a bug. And so Christians are people who live from the foundational belief that in Jesus Christ, the rule of God, the kingdom of God has come near and that Jesus is God's revelation of himself to us, and that living our lives under his rule is the only perfect path for our faith, our doctrine, and our conduct. The thing is, that's all disputable. People can question that. But so is every other set of foundational beliefs. And the last thing I want to touch on very briefly is, is, is the power to do public faith. How can we do it well? And the simplest answer that we see in Scripture is, is and this is the Christian answer, it's grace. Because left to our own devices, we're always going to fall back into our default setting, which is pride. Pride is our default setting apart from the grace of God. It's lifting ourselves up, exalting ourselves, and putting others down. And, and, and all of us get this sense of meaning in our superiority and difference from other people, right? That our tribe is the best, and so we belong in places of political and cultural power and influence. But that's not the way of Jesus who shows us power through humility. Pride says, I'm right, you're wrong. Grace says, I want you to have what I have. And the grace of Jesus it, that sees everything she's ever done, he sees everything in this woman's complicated, messy, broken life. All of her brokenness, all of her sin, Jesus sees that, everything she's ever done. And at that very moment, he offers her the waters of eternal life. 
He doesn't say, well, get, get, get your life together and then come back here and I've got this amazing water that I can offer you. No, he offers it to her at that moment. Grace means that you don't have to get your life together before you get God, right? Religion says get right to get God, and grace says get God to get right. And Jesus can offer her and all of us this water before we get right because he said on the cross, I thirst. And all of us, we, 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 we base our identity on, on our superiority and our, our betterness to, compared to other people. But in Christ, we have a different identity that says, I'm not better than anyone else. I put Jesus on that cross. I crucified him. I'm not saved by being better. I'm saved just the same everyone else was by grace, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so public faith, it starts from two foundational core beliefs about human equality. And the first is that each and every person, regardless of sex, race, class, ethnicity, religion, any other social condition, is created in the image and likeness of God. So that's our first understanding of human equality. And and our second core conviction about human equality is this, is that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. None of us can make a claim on God. All of us are sinners, and our only hope is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And when we start from that place of radical equality in our creation and redemption, then and only then can we begin to do public faith well. So in summary, public faith is necessary because it is God's will for how the gospel spreads. Public faith is done best when we're open and vulnerable and when we point people to Jesus and we have the power to do public faith by grace alone. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.